Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. Be to God. If you're a visitor, I want to, you slipped in late, I want to welcome you again and thank you for coming. My name is Shane. I'm the campus minister here, and I'm going to be bringing God's word to you this morning from Acts chapter 8. Uh, this this semester at RUF, we're going through the book of Acts, and so this is where we're at. So I'm, I'm excited to share with you what God has laid on our hearts and what he's been teaching us. One announcement that I forgot to make earlier was that next week is Easter, and we're going to have our two normal services. In addition to that, we're going to have an Easter sunrise service at Tom and Marsha's house. That's 2121 Legendary Lane. It's a great time to fellowship uh, there'll be a short homily and a few songs to sing. It traditionally rains during that service, so, but we go and do it anyway. Sometimes I, I usually lead it, and I stand in the rain. So if it's raining when you wake up, we're still going. So come on out. Uh, it rained during the first service. I cannot promise you it won't rain during this service, but hopefully we got that all out of the way. So with that, let's, let me pray for us, and then we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> Father in heaven, uh, we do thank you for um, your word. And it says in the the Bible that your word, um, that your word comes down and it accomplishes everything that it wants to accomplish. So we pray right now that your word uh, would transform our hearts and our minds. I pray that it would bring us to a greater faith and greater knowledge of you. And that that would lead us to rejoice in our salvation. We can't do this on our own. We need uh, the Holy Spirit to do it. So we pray that you give us your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you a little bit of uh, context review on the book of Acts uh, before we jump into Acts chapter 8. Sort of the theme first for the book of Acts is Acts 1, verse 8. And it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? So it's sort of this, uh, this commission that is sending the church out to take the gospel 
to the nations. It's going to start in Jerusalem and Judea, then it's going to go to Samaria, then it's going to go to the ends of the earth. Well, in Acts chapters 1 through 5, you basically see the gospel going forth in Judea and Samaria. Uh, then in Acts 6, we begin to see the, the, the beginnings of a little bit of shift. Right? In Acts 6, we read that, that the church is growing so much, we need more leaders to take care of the church. You need the apostles to teach the word, and then they appoint seven leaders to minister to the needy among them. Then in Acts 7, we see one of those godly leaders named Stephen. Stephen preaches a wonderful sermon about how Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses, and the people respond by stoning him to death. Thankfully, you guys don't respond that way whenever Ryan and I preach. Okay? They respond by stoning him to death. He is the first martyr. Um, then what you see after that, though, is what happens is, is something incredible, that a great persecution breaks out in the church. And then because of that great persecution, there's a great dispersion. It scatters the church all over the place. But that does not stop the spread of the gospel. In fact, it only furthers the spread of the gospel. And you see after that, the great evangelization that we're going to read about in Acts 8. Uh, one of the great theologians, Tertullian, wrote this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so what we see in Acts 8 is the, the blood of the martyrs and the seed of the church growing and spreading. We meet another new leader. His name is Philip, often called Philip the Evangelist. And evangelism is a huge theme in Acts 8. Luke uses the term euangelizo to bring the good news five times in this chapter. Sort of emphasizing that the good news is being spread. The good news is being proclaimed and shared. So this sermon is going to be about evangelism. And whenever you hear evangelistic sermons, because of our time and culture and who we are, we immediately think individual evangelism, okay? Um, God calls some of us to be evangelists, those are pastors and preachers and missionaries and teachers. Um, he gives laymen opportunities to do evangelism, but he also calls the church as the body of Christ to be evangelists, not individually, but corporately. And so as we think about this sermon, I want to encourage you not just to think individually about it, but think about our, our role and our place as a body of believers in evangelism. You know, we may not all be up here preaching and teaching each week and proclaiming, but everybody has a role to play in the church, worshiping and serving and proclaiming Christ, and then people coming to faith in Christ. What we see is that as a church, we work because God is at work. And that's really what I want you to see this morning, is that God is at work bringing people to himself in some very unexpected ways. And as I was reading this story, it reminded me of a pastor who saw God at work in a very unexpected way. Uh, the pastor's name is Dr. Robert Rayburn. He was the president of Covenant Seminary. But before he was the president of Covenant Seminary, he was a chaplain in the army. And he got commissioned in Korea to go be a chaplain for some paratroopers. Now, he's an older man. He, was, he had a family, he had kids, he had to leave behind. So he was very nervous about going to Korea and being with these paratroopers. But they said, it's okay, don't worry, they're going to train you. You're going to have plenty of time to get ready. He never jumped out of a plane before, so you can imagine how scared he was. He gets there, and two days into being there with the regiment, the sergeant comes up to him and says, all right, we're going to go on a night jump tomorrow, and we want you to join us. 
He's like, uh, oh no, I gotta go jump. So he gets in the plane with all these paratroopers. They take off. He starts looking around and he realizes that all of these experienced paratroopers are nervous and they're scared. He's thinking, if they're scared, how much more scared should I be? Or how much more scared am I? So he begins to pray. Um, Lord, protect me from evil. Lord, um, guide me, give me wisdom as I try to minister to these paratroopers. Lord, be with me. And then he realizes that God is with him in that plane. And the next thing he notices, the sergeant is nudging him and saying, Chaplain, wake up. It's time to jump. He had fallen asleep and slept for two hours as they traveled to their drop zone. So he wakes up. He's dropped in with these other paratroopers. He's, he's on the front lines there being the chaplain or, or doing whatever they do. I've never been, so I don't know. But he's men- And then what happens, amazingly, over the days and months to come, is soldiers begin to come to him and say, hey, I heard that you fell asleep on the way to the drop zone. How did you fall asleep in the midst of all that chaos? I want to know the God that you know that would help you fall asleep in that moment. And that actually opened the door for him to share his faith with many soldiers, and many of them came to faith because he fell asleep on the plane. So the moral of the story is, sometimes falling asleep on the job pays off, right? (laughs) I tell you that because I think it's a great example of how God is at work in unexpected places, in unexpected people, in unexpected ways. And that's the three things that we're going to look at this morning. God is at work in unexpected people, in unexpected places, and in unexpected ways. The first thing I want you to see is that God is at work in unexpected places. Uh, Look back at Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Okay, so we've got to... We've got to do a little bit of geography. We've got to get a map in our mind, okay? You've got Jerusalem, which is on the southern end of what would have been God's kingdom, the nation of Israel, but it's in the, it's in the southern side because you've got Judah and Israel. They separated, but you've got Judah is in the south. Jerusalem is south there. That's the center of worship. That's where the temple was, okay? So you have this Ethiopian eunuch who went to Jerusalem to worship, well, then he's, he's coming back to Egypt, so he's traveling south on this road. It's about 65-ish miles from Jerusalem to Gaza, and eventually that road is going to continue down to Egypt. Now, you may remember that this town, Gaza, is associated with a group of people called the Philistines. We've read about the Philistines a lot lately because we've been going through the life of David. Who were the Philistines in the Old Testament? They were God's enemies, They were the people that opposed God. They did not worship him. They did not fear him. They did not love him. Right? Furthermore, who were the Egyptians? More Gentiles. People that did not worship God. Right? So you've got this Ethiopian eunuch who's traveling south on the very road that soldiers probably traveled to go up to uh, try to destroy Jerusalem and try to capture God's people. And God says, Philip, look, here's what's going on. I know there's a persecution here. I know that Jerusalem has been the home base, but I want you to go share the gospel. And where do I want you to go? I want you to go right to where my enemies would be traveling. This probably would have been the last place that Philip would have 
expected God to send him, right? If you're Philip, you're probably thinking, hey, I need to be here. I need to be in Jerusalem. I need to stay with everybody here. I need to fight this great persecution. And God says, no, I want you to go to an unexpected place and I want you to share the gospel there. And, and this is the beginning of a theme. Actually, it's, not the, it's actually not the beginning of the theme. It's actually a theme that you see all through the Bible that the gospel was always intended to go out towards the nations. That it was always intended to spread to the Philistines and to the ends of the earth. Um, there are actually prophecies in the Psalms that talk about the the gospel, the light going to the nations, the light going to the Philistines and going to the Egyptians. So God's kingdom has always been expanding into unexpected places. And here we see that sort of beginning. It's, it's sort of a loosening of, the, of God's kingdom from just to Jerusalem to spreading out over the globe. And thousands of years later, we still see God's kingdom expanding into unexpected places. One of the unique things about Christianity is it, it didn't just stay in Jerusalem. It didn't just stay in the Middle East, but it has expanded all over the world. There are Christians all over the world worshiping Jesus because the gospel goes out. Um, and it goes out despite persecutions. One of the great examples of that is um, the, the development of the church in China. In 1949, in China, the national government was defeated by the communists, and when the communists took over, they drove out over 600 missionaries that were in China. They said, you've got to get out. It looks like, from, from our perspective, of course, this looks like a total disaster. But within four years, over 200 of those missionaries had been commissioned in other areas in Southeast Asia and Japan, and the church in China had grown to 30 or 40 times the number that they had whenever the missionaries were there. So in four years, in the midst of that persecution, the church had multiplied exponentially. And right now, the church is growing leaps and bounds, not in America, but in South America and Africa, among the rural and the poor, the people that we would least expect. So the gospel is going into all these unexpected places and it's transforming things all over the world, but it's also doing it here in very ordinary places, places you might not expect. The gospel is going forth in long talks on your back porch with your friends. God is at work in conversations with your children on the way to school. God is at work in the gym when you're talking with the people that you work out with. God is at work, believe it or not, when you go to family reunions and you meet people that you've barely known, but they're your family, and so you're forced to talk with them. God is at work in coffee shops and on sidewalks and even on the campus, the secular, bad, evil place. One of the unique things about being a campus minister is I get to eat on campus a lot with students, so I'm there, and you do this really normal, weird thing. You go eat with students, but what happens is you find out God is at work when you start eating with him. And it, this happens all the time. You know, like, I'll go, I'll meet with a student, we'll go to Chick-fil-A, we'll get in the Chick-fil-A line, we'll stand around, we'll make small talk in the Chick-fil-A line, we'll grab our Chick-fil-A sandwiches because they're the best, we'll go to the atrium, we'll sit in the atrium amongst hundreds of other people, we'll eat our food, we'll begin to talk about life, then we begin to talk about sin and brokenness, then we begin to talk about the goodness and the gospel in the midst of sin and brokenness. And before you know it, we're sitting in the middle of the atrium crying over our chicken sandwiches. 
because God is at work in, in common, ordinary things like meals where we don't even expect it. So God is at work in these, these geographical places, but God is also at work in the desert. I love that, that Luke puts this in here. This is a desert place. So a desert place can be a geographical place, but it also a desert place can be a spiritual place. It can be a place where there's spiritual death and dryness and bareness. God is at work in those places too, bringing life where there's death. And so I ask you, where are the spiritual desert places in our culture? If we can identify those, we, we can find places where God is at work. God is at work in the desert of alcoholism, bringing moments of clarity and freedom to people who have been enslaved. God is at work in the desert of anxiety, comforting people with his provision. God is at work in the desert of depression, shining the light of his face into darkness. God is at work in the desert of loneliness, showing himself to be the friend that is more faithful than a brother. If God is at work in those places, then let's go there. Let's go there with people. Let's, let's, let's stop and pray and look around and listen and ask ourselves, where are the unexpected places where God might be at work? And let's go there and join him. God's at work in unexpected places. God's also at work in unexpected people. Look back at verse 27. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. So God not only sends Philip to this really unexpected place, but he sends him to a very unexpected person. He sends him to an Ethiopian. Now, as you read through this description of the Ethiopian, you see that he is an outsider in many, many ways. Okay, let me just try to list some of the ways he's, he's an outsider. First off, he's an Ethiopian, either by birth or by culture, right? So when he went to Jerusalem, he was automatically culturally on the outside and, and probably racially on the outside. He was a black African in a, in a Middle Eastern area, right? So he's culturally and racially an outsider. Not only that, he's a eunuch. A eunuch was somebody who either by choice or by birth was unable to have children, was emasculated. And so his sole job was to serve the queen. He would never have had a family. He wouldn't have had children. Now, you think that would be a little bit taboo in our culture. It'd be a little bit weird. We'd, you know, we'd kind of be like, okay, what, you know, what's this guy like? In their culture, I mean, it was unheard of. Because, you know, that culture really upheld marriage and family and kids, and that's how you received blessings and you passed on blessings. And so he would have been a, a social outsider for sure. So he's a cultural outsider. He's a racial outsider. He's a social outsider. He's also, to serve in the court, he would have to be highly educated. So he wouldn't fit in with all the commoners. Um, he's also got dignity and status because he serves the queen. So he's, again, separated from the commoners. But we see that God is at work in his life, even though in, on the surface we would look and say, look at all these outside factors. I mean, whenever he goes to Jerusalem to worship, he can't even go on the inside and worship with everybody else. The closest he could get was the court of the Gentiles. He was always on the outside. 
but God was at work. He was, he was seeking to worship God. And we see that because he went to Jerusalem. And somehow in God's providence, he gets a scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading it. God is drawing this very unexpected person to himself. And we see here what we see all through Acts and what we see all through the Bible is that God is drawing all different types of men and women to himself. He's drawing Jews and Gentiles. He's drawing the rich and the poor. He's drawing women and men. He's drawing blacks and whites and browns and reds. He's drawing Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians. He's drawing educated uh, college professors and uneducated uh, little children. He's drawing everybody to himself. That his love is big enough to encompass all different types of people. And that, that, that bringing in those unexpected people brings him glory and honor. Uh, Paul says it this way, For consider your calling, brother. Not many of you are wise according to the flesh. Not many were noble. Not many were mighty. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So we have to ask ourselves, in whom do we least expect God to be working? Like, who are the people that you would look around and categorically, you would look at them and just be like, ah, you know, God's not a work in them. Or maybe we wouldn't say it like that. We're a lot nicer. We'd say, ah, I don't really know if I can talk to my neighbor. You know, there's a lot of differences there you know, that person's really not like me. They don't look like me. They don't talk like me. They don't act like me. Or, you know, we probably don't have much in common, so I just, I'll just leave them alone. Who are those people? Those are the very people that God, as a church, wants us to move towards, to love and to serve and to care for because he's at work in their lives. I heard a great story to illustrate this in December when I was at RUF staff training, there was a pastor there from California. And the pastor said that uh, at one point in their church, they had a young lady who had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. She uh, felt sincere remorse for her sins. So she came to the elders. She confessed her sins. She said, this is what I did. Um, the elders heard her confession. They talked to her. Um, and they were convinced that she was truly repentant. And so they said, okay, Thank you for coming. We're not going to place you under church discipline. We're going to care for you. We're going to love you. We're going to love this baby. We're going to walk with you. But here's the problem. You're going to start to show, and people are going to start to ask questions, and they're going to wonder what's going on. So we kind of need to let people know, and, and we're going to tell them that we're going to walk through this process with you. So the, the Sunday came. The pastor got up. He explained the situation to everybody, and he told the congregation um, that our job as a church is to rally around this girl, to love her, to throw her baby showers, to love this baby, and to care for her. And so after the, after the sermon, when everything was over, women came up, and they hugged her, and they cried, and they cared for her. Now, what they didn't know was that Sunday in their church, there was another young lady who had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And that young lady was a non-Christian who was thinking about having abortion. But she thought to herself, you know what? I'm going to give Jesus and the church another try. I'm going to give it a chance. She, she came to church that morning. 
She heard the pastor talk about that young lady. She saw the way the church rallied around that girl and loved her. And she said, if this is what Jesus and the church are like, then I want to be a part of it. She kept coming back. She became a Christian, and she did not give her baby up for abortion. God was at work in a very unexpected person. God is at work in very unexpected people all around us. Let's stop. Let's look. Let's listen. Let's pray. And let's be a part of what God's doing. God's at work in unexpected places and unexpected people. And he's at work in unexpected ways. Look at Acts uh, 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was like this, was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This passage is incredible because it's so ordinary. It's so ordinary, we wouldn't even expect it. Look at how God was at work. God was at work reading scripture, reading the Bible. Shocker, right? God works through scripture. But we don't think that, right? We think, well, God is... God has got to be at work on a mountaintop experience. God has got to be at work at church camp. God has got to be at work in all these, God has got to be at work in a light show, in a video, in all these crazy things. He couldn't be at work at something so boring as scripture. But he is. Because that's where we find Jesus. That's where his spirit works. That's where his spirit blows and changes people. God's at work in the reading of scripture. And God's at work in a teacher. Okay, just don't you love the humility of, of the eunuch? Like, he was an educated guy. He could read the words on the page, right? But he had the humility to go, I don't, somebody's got to explain this to me. God has given the church teachers to help us understand the scriptures. And the question is, are we humble enough to listen? Are we humble enough, one, to sit with the scripture and meditate on it? But two, will we go talk to people? Will we ask questions? God has given the church uh, teaching elders and ruling elders to oversee the ministry of God's word. We can learn from them. We can grow with them in our understanding of the scriptures. God has also given laymen and laywomen insights into the scriptures so they can explain it and walk with us. One of the most powerful things you can do with somebody is just sit down and read the Bible with them. Um, also at RUF staff training, once they brought in a, a British minister, uh, and they, they asked this British minister, they said, we want you to talk to us about how to share the gospel in a post-Christian world. I don't know if you know this, but British has been post-Christian for a long time now. And he said, yeah, let me, let me show you what we found to be the most successful in sharing the gospel in our culture. He said, this is what we do. We will go to a coffee shop, a group of us. We will sit and we'll talk and we'll get to know people. And then at some point, we'll bring our Bibles, and we'll sit down and we'll, we'll read our Bibles. And we'll invite the people that we've already developed a relationship with 
just to sit and talk to us. Or maybe they might say, hey, you crazy people, why are you reading your Bibles? And he said, so we sit and we read the Bible with him and we talk with him through the scriptures and people get changed. It's, it's incredible, guys. Relationships, interaction with the word, the Holy Spirit works through that to transform men and women because the gospel of Jesus Christ is found in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit works in the scriptures. And the third thing that we see that's unexpected is that God works in an unexpected gospel. The message of the Bible is not what the Ethiopian eunuch would expect. It's not what we would expect. It is totally upside down, totally opposite. Look at the scripture that he reads. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So you have a sheep that's going to be killed. It's going to be silenced. He doesn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. This, this sheep is humiliated. This sheep does not get justice. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And this sheep was taken away from the earth because this generation was so broken. Now, how do we understand that? Well, we understand it by understanding the good news about Jesus Christ. Philip explained the good news of the gospel to the eunuch from this passage. And we probably said is this. He probably said there's another scripture that says, we all like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And what that means is that we are God's wandering sheep. And in our rebellion and in our sinfulness, we wandered away from God. We rejected him. We rebelled against him. As Tom read in the confession of sin, it wasn't just a little thing. It wasn't a light thing. It was a blasphemy against the, the Lord of the universe. We hated him and rejected him. We ran the other direction. But God sent a sacrificial sheep. And that sacrificial sheep was Jesus. And that sacrificial sheep took the sins of the wandering sheep onto himself and he marched all the way. He carried those sins all the way to the cross where he died an unjust death to pay for their sins. And he rose to save them from their sins. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a story of grace. It's a story of God's grace and God's power. It's a story of God's sacrificial sheep that rescues his wandering sheep. And when you, if you look at all of Scripture, you'll see that, that this was totally unexpected, that Jesus was unexpected, that the gospel was unexpected, that we in our human thinking couldn't conceive of this. Think about it. Jesus came from an unexpected place. He came from heaven. He came from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was Nowheresville, right? It was like Perkins. Oh, sorry, did I say that? <laughs> Had to get a joke in there, right? He came from Nazareth. And he came from Egypt. At one point when he was a baby, guess where he had to go? He had to go to Egypt. Jesus came, was an unexpected person. It wasn't just a man that was made spiritual. He was God himself who came in the flesh to rescue us. He was a carpenter and he was a humble king that rode in on a donkey and died on a cross. Jesus came in an unexpected way. He came to defeat his enemies, not through power, but through death. 
And not only that, he came to rescue his enemies. And he sits on the throne of heaven right now, ruling and reigning, not with the sword, but with grace and kindness and the love of the Holy Spirit that draws men to himself. Jesus is an unexpected savior, the same way that this Ethiopian eunuch is an unexpected convert. That's the good news of the gospel. Um, when, you, when you begin to explain the gospel to people who are unchristian or, or not in our culture, they don't really get it. And I had this experience recently. I was talking with a friend of mine who is from Turkey. He's culturally Muslim. So he doesn't, he doesn't really get Christianity. He hasn't been exposed to it a lot. And he was asking me about my job, and he said, so do you teach people to be good Christians? And I said, well, that's a complicated question. That's a yes and no question. That's a yes and no answer. I said, yes, I do teach people to be good Christians, but it's not what you think it is. So what most people think about Christianity is they think Christianity is there to make, to transform bad people into good people, or to transfer, to transform good people into great people. But the gospel is really there to take dead people and make them alive. So when I go teach, I teach dead people that there's a savior that loves them and wants to make them alive. That's the unexpected good news of the gospel. That's what this man heard. That's what he believed. He was baptized and he went away rejoicing. God was at work and he invites us to go to work with him. Now, when we hear evangelistic sermons, we've heard a lot of them, and we hear this sermon, I think we immediately feel guilt and shame. I should do evangelism, I don't. I've done evangelism, I'm bad at it. I don't know anybody that says I'm a really good evangelist. Even Ryan and I, who are called to be evangelists as pastors, would read this passage and go, yeah, uh, probably falling short on this one. I want to I comfort you with a couple things as we step away from this passage. One is this, that, that God's at work whether you're, you're at work or not. The Holy Spirit was at work in this situation long before Philip ever was. Holy Spirit's at work in your neighbor, in your city, and in this church, whether you are or not. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this, that God, God loves to use us, but not out of guilt and shame. He wants to use us out of rejoicing and celebration. And I think we'll begin to see that if we would look at this passage and read it, not as us being Philip, but as us being the Ethiopian eunuch. Look at your own story. How is it God at work in your life? I bet God was at work in some very unexpected places. He probably didn't find you on a mountaintop spiritual high. He probably found you when you were alone and lonely, when you were depressed, when you were anxious, when you were suffering, when you were addicted. He probably found uh, a lot of us when we were suffering from the, the greatest sin of all, pride and self-righteousness. When we wanted nothing to do with him because we just thought we were too good for him. That's where he came, and that's where he met us, and that's where he loved us. He was Philip. He sought us out. And he found us as very unexpected people. We weren't good. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were rebellious against God. 
but he loved us. He was kind and gentle and gracious and merciful with us. And he found us in unexpected ways. He showed us that, that he doesn't love us because we do evangelism. He doesn't love us because we read our Bibles. He loves us because he loves us, because we're his children. That's the good news of the gospel. And as you begin to, to let that soak in, that causes you to rejoice. The Ethiopian eunuch, he left rejoicing. And I bet as he was rejoicing, other people heard him. And they probably said, hey, why are you rejoicing? And then he got the opportunity to say, I'm rejoicing because I have a Savior who loves me and a God who cares about me and a Holy Spirit at work in my life. Uh, my son has recently gotten more and more into playing the piano. Um, it's really gotten into him. And the, the, I know it's gotten into him because of this. Now he walks around the house and he hums all of his piano songs. He hums the tune and he begins singing the words. And he does it enough that this fun but slightly annoying thing happens, the tune gets in my head. And I start humming it too. I think if we, as, as we as a church, begin um, to rejoice in the good news of the gospel and celebrate that, other people are going to hear that song. And it's going to catch them. And they're going to want to know what it is. And they're going to celebrate too. You know what the evangelistic program of Acts was? It was the church worshiping, the church serving, and the church rejoicing. Let's do that. Let's worship Jesus together. Let's serve each other and serve our neighbors. And let's rejoice. And God's going to be at work. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we do thank you so much that you would use the foolish things like us to shame the wise you to use the weak things to shame the strong. God, we confess that we are foolish, that we are weak, that our best evangelistic efforts as people and as a church fall far short. But that's not, but you don't love us because we're great evangelists. You love us because you love us, because we're your children, and because you're at work in our lives. And so I pray that you would show us that, that you would help us to rejoice, and we pray that Stillwater and the world around us would hear the good news of the gospel in our singing and they'd want to come to it and hear more about it. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.